this week, we're going to talk about fear. A specific moment of fear that the painter Philip Guston felt in his Woodstock studio and how he battled that fear to successfully change his work to the enigmatic, iconic, cartoony style that we know him for today. Mostly I'll be reading to you from a book of interviews in which he describes, in his own words, the exact moment that his metamorphosis began to overtake him and how he felt during this radical shift. Listening to Pep Talks for Artists, a podcast offering small words of encouragement to all those shuffling along the artist's road. I'm your host, Amy Toledo. Philip Guston was a Canadian American painter born in 1913 who began his career during the Abstract Expressionist movement. The Abexers were sweeping the country as the next great thing in art and developing a bit of a swagger. Painters everywhere were ditching representational painting for the new experimental style of pure abstraction, and Philip Guston was no exception. He was a part of the in-crowd, He showed his paintings regularly and was well-esteemed and well-reviewed in the New York City art world. He made these thickly painted, muted abstract works in grays and subtle pinks that kind of hung in space like little painterly nerve centers on monochromatic backgrounds. And everyone loved the guy. I mean, he was making abstract paintings when abstract paintings were cool and the stars were aligned. He was basically just rocketing to the top. Picture him in this one photo, in his soaring studio at the American Academy in Rome, standing in front of one of these types of paintings, wearing an ascot and holding a cigarette. The poster boy for the cool new trend. Then around 1967, a feeling of unease and restlessness started to creep into his mind and he began to feel the need to change. The images that started coming out of him were strange. Bare light bulbs, ashtrays, disembodied eyes, piles of legs and shoes. And all in that same monochromatic gray-black-pink palette But now, a cartoonish nightmare was replacing those soft, melancholy abstractions. So, keeping this all in mind, I'd like to read you an excerpt taken from his talk at Yale Summer School of Music and Art in 1972 and transcribed in the book Philip Guston Collected Writings, Lectures, and Conversations, which was edited by Clark Coolidge. This excerpt details the exact minute he made the leap. He was in his studio in the backyard of his Woodstock cottage on Maverick Road in mental agony, hemming and hawing, just generally in a full freak-out freefall. 
He talks about how much he needed to stay isolated at this time because his nerve was so fragile. Quote, I didn't go into New York or I went to New York, but I wouldn't go see a show. There were a lot of retrospective shows when I was in, but I hadn't the slightest interest. I would have to send elaborate telegrams to de Kooning about why I couldn't come to his big show at the Modern. I just didn't want to look at any painting. I was really living in this world, and I, I just didn't want to look at anything else. I remember Barney Newman called me. He was having this big show at Nodler, and I said, Barney, I really, I lied. I said something was wrong with me, and I couldn't come. I, I just simply couldn't. I didn't know what I would do or say if while I was doing this stuff, I had to go in a room with these big striped pictures. And, and I like his work, but I just couldn't, end quote. And he goes on to say, quote, I'd had a fairly full career as a painter, but I couldn't accept this new stuff. That was the problem. Months would go on, and I couldn't accept it. In the house are hanging some few things I kept, some of these pure abstract things. They looked very good. And then in the studio, I would do these things, the guys in cars and all that. While I was in the studio, they were done with convictions. That's what I meant. I did them. Then I'd come in the house to eat and whatnot, and I'd look at those beautiful things from the past, and I'd think, the hell with that stuff in the studio. That's terrible. I can't really stomach it. I'd get sick. I'd stay up all night. Then I'd run back in the studio, and then the things in the house looked terrible. These three beautiful lines, which are so satisfying. So, you can fill in between the lines. There was one point in the middle of this stuff I wanted to roll them all up and hide it, not show it. I mean, you have no idea. They were so worn with pushpin marks. Up would go the pure things. Big sigh of relief. Phew, I can live there. Come in the next day. I can't stand that. It's got to be dirt. Down they'd come. Up would come the drawing with the cars. This stuff. Books, shoes, everything. Ah, the only way I could get over that torture, as I was telling Close, was one night, I thought, there's got to be a solution to this. So I thought, okay, I'm dead. I died. In the sweet by and by, we will meet again. And that idea stuck to me. It started like a playful game, but it became sort of serious. What if I had died? I'm in the history books. What would I paint if I came back? You know, you have to die for a rebirth. And so that released me. And not just released me, it gave me a beautiful, extravagant sense of irresponsibility. That's what I wanted. Because I'm full of the culture of art but I had to throw over my own past. That was it. And of course, my very old and dear friend, Morty Feldman, you know, I'd been telling him about this stuff when I'd come into New York, but he didn't want to come up and see it. Then finally he came up and he was, I think, pretty upset. So you lose friends. But 
I think Baudelaire said, Baudelaire actually did not say this, quote, second to the pleasure of surprising yourself is the aristocratic pleasure of surprising your friends, end quote. And I think I wanted my close friend Feldman to say, you mean that's you? He was close to my work for 20 years, and I wanted to feel as if I was saying to him, you think you know me? You don't know me. It's curious. We could talk for hours about this whole resistance. There's always that problem of one or two dear people who are close to you. In love, aesthetically, in friendship, it's all the same. It's all connected. They get so close that you have to say, get off, you don't know me. There's parts you don't know. And so I'm just waiting for the day that Morty comes up and says it's fantastic. He will. End quote. Recently in my own studio, I've personally been making a huge change myself. So reading this honest account of how it feels was a great help to me. It was so galvanizing to read that it's supposed to feel squeamish and that you're going to lose your nerve from day to day and minute to minute and that you're going to think everything you're making is dumb and this is all normal and expected and part of the whole dying to be reborn. It's messy and stressful when you're in it and you just have to strap yourself to the mast and endure until you're past the sirens. In the book, The War of Art, Stephen Pressfield talks about how your brain will do just about anything to stop you from taking a risk. He writes, quote, Are you paralyzed with fear? That's a good sign. Fear is good. Like self-doubt, fear is an indicator. Fear tells us what we have to do. Remember our rule of thumb. The more scared we are of a work or calling the more sure we can be that we have to do it. Resistance is experienced as fear. The degree of fear equates to the strength of resistance. Therefore, the more fear we feel about a specific enterprise, the more certain we can be that that enterprise is important to us and to the growth of our soul. That's why we feel so much resistance. If it meant nothing to us, there'd be no resistance. End quote. So let's talk about sandbagging your mind against resistance and against the Mortys in your life who might not be so thrilled that you're transforming into something new. How do you keep that treacly trickle of fear out or at least stop it from stopping you? Well, for me, I turn to a cocktail of trashy novels and self-help audiobooks. I literally just needed a voice in my ear saying, you can do this. It's okay to do this. And yeah, in retrospect, many of these self-helpers were pretty narcissistic and I might have only gotten like 10% good stuff out of them. But it was the magical combo meal that helped me keep my nerve, even if it was hanging by a string sometimes. So, the moral is, we have to do what it takes to keep fear from sabotaging new directions in our work. Yeah, Morty might not be on board, but others will be, and people, especially other artists, find bravery exciting. And don't be afraid to turn to extremely lame or embarrassing sources 
for a shot of courage sometimes. Let's check back in with Stephen Pressfield for a second and hear about how the end of a new project can be just like Odysseus's hapless return journey, full of obstacles. Quote, resistance is most powerful at the finish line. Odysseus almost got home years before his actual homecoming. Ithaca was in sight, close enough that the sailors could see the smoke of their family's fires on shore. Odysseus was so certain he was safe, he actually lay down for a snooze. It was then that his men, believing there was gold in an oxhide sack among their commander's possessions, snatched this prize and cut it open. But the bag contained the adverse winds, which King Aeolus had bottled up for Odysseus when the wanderer had touched earlier at his blessed isle. The winds burst forth, now in one mad blow, driving Odysseus's ships back across every league of the ocean they had with such difficulty traversed, making him endure further trials and sufferings before, at last and alone, he reached home for good. The danger is greatest when the finish line is in sight. At this point, resistance knows we're about to beat it. It hits the panic button. It marshals one last assault and slams us with everything it's got. The professional must be alert for this counterattack. Be wary at the end. Don't open that bag of wind. End quote. I suggest a good plan is to make a contract with yourself to finish, without judgment, a single first new work, even if it feels utterly dumb. Even if it might be a waste of time and materials, even if friends think it's a crazy left turn, honor that contract like it's with the devil himself and make that thing. You've been listening to Pep Talks for Artists. If you'd like to check out our Instagram, please find us at Pep Talks for Artists. We really appreciate you stopping by, and we'll see you next time.